remain standing this morning as I read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2, I will continue in my series from this glorious letter penned by John as he is recounting the glorious things that he saw on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, the resurrection day of our Lord Jesus Christ, and hear those particular messages that Christ, the first and the last, the one who walks among the churches, whose mouth is a sword that brings healing and conviction, and even to this day, Christ himself speaks, and out of his mouth that same sword. Hear what the Lord has to say to the church in Smyrna and to us. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O oh Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask that you might, by your glorious, holy, majestic word that was given, that we might not only know how to live, but what we are to know of you, which is itself its own kind of instruction as to how we are to think and feel and live. Lord, make us a people who take all the letters into account. Not only the letter to Smyrna this morning, but the letter of Ephesus and the churches that are to come, that we would be a well-rounded, faithful body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make us a church that radiates your glory to the world. We ask all of these things in your precious and glorious name. Amen. It's a short letter, four verses. Christ has only good things to say to the church in Smyrna. Unlike the, church, the letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus where there were many good things to say, but one thing that he held against them, and that was a lack of love. Now, that doesn't mean that there were not those in Smyrna that did not possess true spiritual affection, love, and devotion, and faith in the Lord Christ Jesus. But as a body, as a body, Smyrna suffered the things that they did out of a devotion and affection for their Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christ is through his servant John, writing a letter to Smyrna. He wishes to encourage them not to grow weary or to lose heart or to lose faith, for he is the one who is sovereign over all the things that they are enduring. Now, 
oftentimes it seems. And the reason it seems this way is because there are men who have taught this principle that when bad things happen, then there is something wrong with you. There is a spiritual problem. Now, there are times where that is absolutely true. Sometimes we experience the weight of our own folly. If you play in traffic, be prepared to get hit by a car. If you testify to the glory and majesty of Christ Jesus over and against the false teaching of Satan and all of those who align themselves against Christ as antichrists, prepare to get hit by a car, metaphorically speaking. Different cause and effect here, right? The Christians in Smyrna are feeling the sufferings of the world, namely those who are Jewish in name alone. They are not true Jews. Christ himself says they are of the synagogue of Satan. There will be times where we will suffer under the weight of those who call themselves true Christians but have no love for Christ. Well, we will endure poverty and hardship and trial and the attacks and the arrows of Satan himself, but know that even this is ordained and directed by God in order to bring about what? Why does Christ providentially decree suffering for his children? Well, that is what we're going to look at this morning. And how it is that Christ uses suffering instrumentally to bring about the furthering of his kingdom. Three points that I want to make this morning. The first, seeing what we need of Christ. Seeing what we need of Christ. Secondly, tribulation and providence. And then third, a guarantee of glory. Seeing what we need of Christ, tribulation and providence, a guarantee of glory. Now, what do we need to see? What do we need to see of Christ in those moments when suffering is most acute and there is a tendency to think, what in the world is going on? Well, let's look. And to the angel or or pastor, messenger of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, it's so short, you may just pass over it. And oftentimes it is easy to look at titles or to see these introductory matters as just, okay, we need to get through this to the meat of the letter. This is part of the meat. You need to pay careful heed to the titles that Christ gives to himself in Scripture. And here, it is a repetition of what we've already heard or read in the book of Revelation, the words of the first and the last Think Alpha and Omega, what came before and what will come or what will be after. He is the one who stands. This is the Lord Jesus Christ before creation. He is the one who is before. He is the one who decreed. He is the instrument by which the Father spoke all things into existence. And he stands after this age of suffering, of militancy of trial, of striving. He is the only eternal God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And not only is he the first and the last, but here Christ says of himself, he was the one who died and came to life. 
Christ truly died. Now, there will be some modern critical scholars who say, that's impossible. That's why you're not king. It is impossible with you and with me, which is why we're not king. That's why you don't have the title. It's easy for men like us to say that's impossible. Of course, the scriptures say what is impossible with man is possible with God. Christ is the one, after all, who rose Lazarus or raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, why wasn't Lazarus king? Because Lazarus was not raised by his own power, was he? He was raised by the power of the king of earth. And he was raised in accordance with the power that would raise Christ from the dead. Christ is king. And his resurrection is testimony of that. Not only is he king, but he is a suffering king. The death of Christ marks the death of our sin. 1 Corinthians 15. There is no more glorious doctrine than the doctrine of the resurrection, Paul would say, because it lies at the crux of all that we believe and all of our hope. If Christ is not raised, then there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then you and I are to be most pitied. There's no point in this. This club, it just needs to dissolve, and you need to go do something else with your Sunday mornings and your Sunday evenings and the whole of your life. But today we celebrate the resurrection. Why? Because there was a resurrection. This is why Christ revealed himself to John on resurrection day. Is because what he is doing is he is revealing the consequences, the fallout, the fruit of the resurrection. This is what a resurrection kingdom looks like, Revelation 1 through 22. And so as Christ speaks to his congregation, who is in the midst of suffering, even to the point of death, they need to know that there is one waiting for them in the afterlife. Listen, there are times when I think of my own death and I think, boy, there is so much that I will have left undone and so many things that I would have done differently. And this is always my thought. Do I have time to turn it around? (laughs) And you know what that always reflects on? I need to do some more good stuff. Isn't that not oftentimes the way we think? I, I need to... I need to get a few days past that time I yelled at my wife or my kids before I feel comfortable being in the presence of God. (laughs) If I could just, maybe he'll forget. (laughs) We think like the movies, like from one scene to the next. We just need a little bit of a a musical interlude that goes between the hard scene and then the, the fun scene. That is not how it works. In fact, if Christ were to keep a record of wrongs, No one could stand before him. But our confidence isn't in the forgetfulness of God. It is in the lasting mercy. It is in the efficacy of Christ's redeeming work. It is that all of our sins, Psalm 103, have been separated from us as far as the east is from the west. That is what the one who died and was raised or came to life ought to remind us of calls us to think of. Why did Christ die after all? Was it just to show his power in his resurrection? Was it just a neat party trick? He's the greatest of all magicians? No. 
He is the God who forgives us of our sins. And there is nothing more strengthening in the life of a believer who is experiencing suffering then your sins are forgiven because then you can go to death with confidence for two reasons. Your sins are forgiven and the sins of the whole world are forgiven in this way. You can go to the cross. You can go to the stake. You can go to the den of lions. You can go wherever there is danger. And your hope is this. God will use your death to exalt himself in the furthering of the kingdom. Uh, One of my children received a Chia pet as an Advent gift. It's Chia Grogu. (laughs) Grogu with a perm. It'll soon be a nice green perm. And, you know, you go through the steps, you water the seeds, you put the seeds on the little ceramic or um, whatever that thing's called, and they begin to sprout. And you wait. Never have we been so excited to see little sprouts. It is a sign of life. It is a sign of what looks like inert matter that when it receives water and sunlight, it just unlocks. This hope, where it seems there is no potential for life is the hope that fills the Christian when it comes to living in light of the glory of the resurrection. This isn't pie-in-the-sky theology. In fact, no theology is pie-in-the-sky. It shouldn't be. It needs to be connected to our very lives. The fact that Christ is raised, and remember what Christ said, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it will not bear fruit. Christ's resurrection gives us hope. For even as Christ has been raised, the scriptures say, so too we will be raised with him. You need to take this into the deep part of your heart. And you need to let that truth sit there and marinate, and you need to roll it around. You need to pull it out from time to time and look at the beauty of it. And you need to contemplate this particular element of what we see of Christ Jesus. He is the first and the last, the one who, though he died, was raised again. And in this, Christ is kind and thoughtful and wise to reveal himself to us in such a way, even at particular times, in a way that we need most. Christ is the death killer. He's already done that. It isn't just something we await for. Now, there will come a time where Christ will throw death itself into hell. And death will be no more. That time has not yet come, which is why we still die. But Christ has conquered death in this by removing the sting of it. So that in the first death, we are not separated by Christ or from Christ or from the Godhead in the second death. I'm speaking of physical death and everlasting judgment. What sustains the believer in the times that Christ is about to speak of, in times of trial, poverty, suffering, testing, is the knowledge that Christ went through that 
all of that himself, and he has beat it. And he is now alive forevermore. Second point, tribulation and providence. Now he continues in his letter, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He's referencing their past suffering. They are about to suffer great suffering. For a period of 10 days, even many of them or some of them will suffer to the point of death. That's a hard letter to receive. You open the letter and you think, what's he going to say? Oh, oh, 10 days. Well, that's not too bad. Death. Okay. Well, that's tough. That's a tough sentence. Now, I would say that it's not hard for those whose lives are already lost to Christ and to the kingdom to embrace death. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To die to self. It's hard for us to die to self because there's all these things that we surround ourselves in life that cause us to live for ourselves. And those who live for themselves have a very hard time dying for themselves. When everything around you is, you're the best, yeah, just celebrate your own life. Everybody wants to look at the pictures of you eating food. Nobody cares, is what everyone really should be saying. I don't care. Some of us, I don't know if we could go 10 days without posting about some particular element of our life. That is where we are as a culture. And do you think that this is by accident? Do you think that this is not some scheme of Satan to teach us how not to die well? In fact, wealth and modernity is itself its own kind of tribulation. In this, it is an exercise not to die, but to preserve our lives at all costs. And that is where Christ commends Smyrna. They have already learned to die. They're poor. But are they? They're slandered. They're slandered by the very people that Christ revealed himself to for millennia and say, we don't care what you have to say. We do not believe in your Messiah. We are the true people of God. What Christ is saying is that all tribulation that hurts the deepest, that cuts the most, is religious tribulation. It is always a tribulation and a conflict between the spirit of the earth and the spirit who is Christ alive in the world. It is that of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There is this cosmic enmity conflict, and wherever there is conflict, it isn't just between people. Human people without spiritual soul-level reality, but there is this great cosmic principalities and powers of the air, and Satan is at work. Now, you're going to be around people when you begin to talk that way that grow uncomfortable because they don't want to talk that way. Because when you talk that way, what it makes it sound like is, A, you're not the master of your own destiny, and number two, did I say A, B... (laughs) I'm like that kid on Home Alone. <laughs> B, you come across like a lunatic. 
But then just remind them that they believe they came from monkeys, okay? If there ever comes a point in the time where the modernist says, you believe crazy stuff, then you can also say, you don't believe babies are human too. So let's at least stop pretending that this conflict, this tribulation, this poverty, this slander, it is all the spiritual working its way out into what we can see. Which is why Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Your contentedness with earthly poverty begins with your soul. And Smyrna was a church who loved Christ and was willing to suffer. Even at the hands of those who should know better. And not just the Jews, but Rome, the great beast of the book of Revelation. You will suffer at the hands, not of members of an opposite political party or gender or class, but of a whole other kingdom. Those who are of the kingdom of Satan. And when you actually believe that and live according to that, you will know how to fight better. You will know how to fight more effectively, have greater and deeper hope, Because you will become a person who is guarded and guided by the word. And the promise that you will stand upon is not, it's just four years. It's what? Christ is the death killer. Christ is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. We are myopic, not only in what we, how we perceive solutions to problems, but how we think of the problems to begin with. And not only did they suffer in the past, but Christ says, there is more coming. There is more coming. How does he know this? Well, there is a debate, and there has been a debate for centuries, on the doctrine of foreknowledge and the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of foreknowledge basically says this, God sees all things, but he doesn't necessarily guarantee the result of the things that he sees. This is nonsense. This is open open theology stuff, Clark Pinnock and others. This doctrine is dangerous and it steals from God anything that is godlike about God. He knows it, but he hasn't ordained it. This is dispensationalism. This is Arminianism. Arminianism teaches, as it relates to your salvation, God gets you to the 20-yard line, but in terms of the red line offense, you've got to carry the ball. It's up to you. Well, guess what? (laughs) you don't have much of a ground game and you certainly can't throw. You're going to be stuck there. That is the way it is. It's still football season in my mind. So openness theology, the only, this idea of only foreknowledge that God sees everything, but doesn't guarantee everything steals God of majesty and glory The doctrine of divine decrees and sovereignty and providence says this, God hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. All you shorter catechism memorizers should say amen, because that's, (laughs) I know it too. Not nearly as well as some of you. Everything that comes to pass, where you're sitting. Well, I thought I chose my pew. Well, you did. 
But these secondary causes never fall outside of the providence of God. And it is here, does it not say that it is Satan? It is Satan, the devil, verse 10. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Or you go back to the story of Job. What is this dialogue between the devil and God and Satan bringing these calamities? God, in his sovereignty, can use whatever means he desires to bring about his ends. But there is always a greater purpose above the means and the instruments that God ordains to bring about his ends. How does God bring salvation to the life of a person? By his Holy Spirit, through the use of means. Word, prayer, sacrament. God uses those three things primarily to bring about a work of salvation in your heart. Which is why we also read, if there are those who do not go out and preach, how will they hear? Can't the Spirit just kind of go over all the world and just sort of blow the gift of salvation? No, that's not how the Spirit works. It is by word. And as the word is preached, the Spirit proclaims. In the same way, Satan... This means of carrying out even God's sovereign decrees wars against the church, but in a very limited way. Why do we say it's limited? Well, isn't everything limited by God's decrees? Aren't all things? Everything is limited, and that it is bound by what God hath said whether we read it in Scripture or whether it is according to the counsel of the decrees of God in eternity past where the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, this is how it's going to be, or this is what's going to happen. We don't have an audience. We were not there. There's no transcript of that counsel of decreeing. But we see it played out, and this is how it plays out. The devil thinks that by bringing suffering against the church, I will convince them it's not worth it. But Christ comes to the church in Smyrna, and what does he say? It's not up to the devil. It's up to me. And for 10 days you will suffer. Now, what are the 10 days? It's 10 days. It's just 10 days. Now, that doesn't mean that's only what the church suffers, but this particular event Christ is speaking of, for ten days you will suffer even unto death, but be faithful. And that Christ knows these ten days, the question is, is that all he knows? No. He knows of every day, of all suffering, down to the last millisecond of the pain that you experience when Satan and those of the synagogue of Satan, all unbelievers, all antichrists, are warring against the church, Christ, in his decrees, brings that against the church in his sovereignty in order to do what? What's the point? Why suffer anyway? Well, I would say for the sake of our own spiritual fitness and for the building up of the church, and because Christ is glorified, when the plans of Satan are completely upended. Everyone loves a good paradox, a good turn of the story. When the bad guy gets it in the end. Why do we like that? 
because we are satisfied with the meeting out of justice against wickedness. And that is the story of the church. The story of the church is the story of, it seems like evil has the upper hand. Pharaoh is, in fact, emperor of the greatest kingdom in the world. And there is Israel for 400 years, languishing over pagan rule until a son is born. He's put into a basket. He's raised in the court of Pharaoh. He's removed from Egypt because he murders someone seeking to take power for himself. And despite that, God calls him anyway. And then he sends Moses to Egypt along with his brother because Moses is a little bit of a wimp. And God utterly humiliates Pharaoh in the kingdom of Egypt by a sheep herder. He used to be a prince. He was demoted. A sheep herder and his brother. But it wasn't Moses, was it? It wasn't by magic. It was by the supernatural, miraculous power of God working to bring to nothing the plans of Satan. How much more Christ Jesus now that he is raised? And so what we, what we find here is not just a particular expression of do not fear, but have hope to the saints in Smyrna, but an entire doctrine of suffering for the church. Christ knows the times and seasons for every individual whom he has called to be his disciple, not only to be called, to be regenerated, but the whole span of their life, their suffering, times of blessing, it's all there. Remember Solomon? Ecclesiastes chapter 3? There is a time and a season for everything. And those times and seasons are not aimless or impersonal. They are decreed by God. They are his. He knew the works of Smyrna. He knows their tribulation. He knows our works. He knows our tribulation. He knows whether or not we will experience greater tribulation. Right now in the nation of Canada, a law has just been passed unanimously in the House of Parliament where a preacher cannot preach from the Scriptures the call to repentance for those who are in the sin of homosexuality. And if you do it, you go to jail for five years. That is the law of the land. Guess what I'll be preaching on? I wish I was in Canada. (laughs) No, I actually don't. What I wish is that the saints of God would go, you know what? We let this happen. You know how? We don't suffer well. And when I say we don't suffer well, I mean oftentimes what we do is we suffer, but not for the sake of Christ. These Christians in Smyrna were suffering because they refused to bow to those who said Christ is not Lord. Why else would they be in prison? They suffered because of their faithfulness to Christ Jesus. And if there is not something at the end of that suffering, you will not suffer well. What's the point, right? What is the point if it is impersonal, unknown, Or is, in fact, the work only of Satan? 
But Satan is bound. Christ is sovereign. And though suffering is for Satan, part of his mission to conquer the church, suffering is for Christ who is king, the means by which Satan's kingdom is actually overthrown. This makes Satan a lunatic, doesn't it? Trying the same thing over and over and over again without avail. Now, there are times where the sufferings of the saints leads to unfaithfulness. And this is why Christ reveals himself as he does here to the church in Smyrna. Don't lose hope. You need to listen at what Christ says. You need to look at who Christ is and what does he say to those who are suffering. Be faithful even unto death. And not only that, but just prior to that, do not fear. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Kids, if your parents ever said, it's going to be okay. You know, you stubbed a toe. Maybe you're sick. You know, it's one of those moments where life is just, it's awful. And your dad says, it's going to be okay. And you go, well, how do you know? (laughs) Well, because it will. Now, you don't want to say, well, when I say it's going to be okay, what I mean is this, that at some point you will awaken in the kingdom and you will live forever with Christ. And you go, well, how does that help me with this gash on my knee right now? (laughs) But then as you get older, you go, oh, wow, that actually does make a difference. We need to listen to what Christ says. This exhortation is not just some sort of, all right, stop crying, stop crying. It's going to be okay. Here's a Band-Aid. It is the assurance of the one who has defeated death and hell. And the weight of his assurance is directly tied to the extent of his destruction of the kingdom of darkness. He can say that, and not only do his words reassure us because they are good, but his words come to us by the Holy Spirit. And they work their way into our hearts by Christ's own power, and they give us hope. And it is a hope that you never thought you could have. In the loss of a spouse, in the loss of a child, or a friend, or a parent, the job, your own health, in the diminishing of your reputation in a culture that used to love Christians now despises you, that doesn't matter compared to the richness and the glories of the promise of Christ Jesus. And so we have every reason to embrace suffering with hope because we, lastly, have a guarantee of glory. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Here and elsewhere in the book of James, the crown of life is referred to as the reward for faithfulness. It's not a participation trophy. I'm so sick of participation medals. They're not even metal. Have you noticed this, parents? Your kids' trophies are made of like resin. And when they drop them, they break. (laughs) This is not a participation trophy. 
This is a trophy given to those who endure. It is given to those who live in light of the glory of Christ's kingdom. And they look at death in the face and say, what you got? I know the one who killed you. Bring it. For even at the end, which is ironic, that the worst that a man can do, Christ himself says this, is kill you. You know what that sinful man is doing? Speeding up the day you see Christ. Okay. Now, it may hurt. Being burned alive, don't want that to happen. If I go, just take my head. (laughs) Which is why... It was good to be a Roman citizen in Paul's day. You don't get crucified upside down. You get your head cut off. I guess it's not so much death, is it? It's the weight of loneliness, of scorn, of rejection of those who once called me friends. It's the pain right before the death part. But all of that is trumped ultimately by this. Listen. Verse 11, listen, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There is a death that is even greater and more severe in its consequences than the first. It is one thing to die with Christ in the pain of it all, but to experience the second death is a far greater harm. Second death, of course, refers to what? I never knew you. It is the judgment, the eternal judgment of Christ himself. Even here, there isn't a warning per se. There is an encouragement to call into context, to put in its proper place how we are to think of our lives and eternity. Christ is teaching us to fear the second and not the first. To embrace the well done of our loving Savior so that we might suffer well. And in this, courage is its own capital. This is what makes you rich. And this is the kind of wealth that we are to embrace. The wealth of the crown of life. So what do we see? In these two letters, these things so far, verses one through seven, love Christ and his people. That is at the heart of the gospel. And then verses eight through 11, this letter to Smyrna, to possess a fearless faith in the presence of suffering and death and only a faith that has as its seed, its root, its center, a love for Christ will be a fearless faith. And I will say this, there may come a time in our own lives, in the lives of our children, or even here, it will be called of us. Will you be fearless? And we may say, I hope that never happens, and I hope that never happens. But even if it does, we have this God, a God who has defeated death and hell, who has promised us a crown of life and faithfulness. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we...